Today on Something You Should Know, there's a simple phrase you can use that will get almost anyone to do almost anything for you. Then, understanding the science of winning and losing. British researcher concluded that home field advantage gave you 160% more value in a negotiation. I was talking to a guy and I said, if you're asking your boss for a raise, you should ask for it in your office. Anyway, no one gets to negotiate for a raise in their office. I said, I know, exactly. Plus, mail enhancement. It's a multi-million dollar business, and the entire thing is a total scam. And why does it seem people are getting ruder and nastier? There is just this sense that we all have to be heard. There's a phrase people use all the time, which is, I'm only being honest. I'm just saying what other people are thinking. And I think you have to sort of ask yourself, why are other people only thinking it? Does it need to be said? All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. So how do you share a podcast? That question came up recently from a listener who wanted to share an episode of this podcast with someone else. And they were listening, I think, on on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as it's called now. And they weren't quite sure how to share it. But with all the directories, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, there is a, a share button on or near the player, depending on which directory you're in. And, and you can just click on that and share away. And I encourage you to share this podcast with others because it will make you look so smart and so in the know. Our first topic today is how to get what you want. The next time you really need someone to say yes, it's a good idea to use the old only-if-you-want-to trick. A study on persuasion techniques is suggesting that adding this simple phrase, or one like it, can double your chances of success. The best approach is to keep your request short and sweet, be direct and sincere, and then follow the request with the phrase, but you're free to say no or only if you want to. Reminding the other person that they are in control softens the favor and it makes it harder to say no. Now, the tone is also important. Even the slightest hint of insincerity or sarcasm can be perceived as passive-aggressive and it will backfire. And that is something you should know. One of the great things about watching the Olympics is knowing that you're watching the best of the best from all over the world. These are elite performers in their field. So how did they get there? What did they do or what is it that they have that people who don't make the Olympic team have? And what do those who win a gold, silver, or bronze medal have that separates them from people who don't win a medal? Ashley Merriman has taken a careful look at what makes some people winners. She and her colleague, Poe Bronson, are authors of a book called Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. And she joins me now to talk about what makes a winner and how anyone can improve their chances of winning at anything. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. So when you drill down into the science, if you can, what is it you think makes a winner? What are the characteristics of an elite performer? If you talk about elite performance, my favorite study, you know, because what's the difference between a novice and an elite performer? 
lack of technical skill, right? That's not a surprise. The novice literally doesn't know what they're doing. But what defines an elite performer, one from the next? Shouldn't they all be great? But they're not. One person wins a super, one team wins a Super Bowl, one person walks home with an Olympic gold medal. They're all Olympians. They're all elite. They should all win. They should all perform at ceiling. They're not. And a study at the Washington State University actually looked at this, and they had law enforcement officers come in, and they had at least 10 years of experience, and they were coming in for a shooting simulation task. Well, they all know how to do this. They've all had weapons training. They've done this task before. They, they know how to operate a firearm. And the researchers determined that 73% of the variance, the difference between one performer and the next, for elite performance was psychophysiological factors. You know, how did they sleep the night before? Did they have an argument with their girlfriend in the car on the way to the lab? Were they scoring based on how many hits they got or how many hits they missed? So it's not about the mechanical skills. It's about managing the psychology and using that to fuel your best performance. And, yes, I think the elite performers know that and they train for it. And it's very – and we've done re- they've done studies – why did you win the Olympics? What were you doing? And all of them have pretty consistent explanations in terms of how they became an Olympic champion. And it's that kind of thing? It's getting enough sleep and not arguing with your girlfriend? <laughs> well, the Olympic champions specifically came up with a few key findings in terms of why they explained their victory. And for most of them, a lot of it had to do with the fact that they lost the last time. They hadn't even made the Olympic team, or they lost in the finals. And they were so furious that they thought and agonized over every single element of their performance. And I don't mean that in a ruminating, oh, wow, I lost the Olympics, this is awful, beat myself up for four years way. It was scrutinizing every aspect of their performance so that they never made those mistakes again. So... So it's really fueled by this state of mind of, you know, you're in control, it's your responsibility to be your best, to, or at least the best you can be. You chose to try being an Olympian. You chose to be the best guy on Wall Street, a amazing surgeon, an amazing attorney, uh, the best at your work. It doesn't matter the context. You chose to do this. It's your decision. You're in control. And that Knowing that, you have this unshakable belief you will ultimately prevail. Not today, maybe today, but ultimately you will win. And if you have those, you can be an Olympic champion in any context. So failure, losing, is a great motivator. Yes. It's the ultimate motivator, isn't it? (laughs) Is it? Is it really? Oh, I have... Well, hmm... That's a good question. I think it depends on the degree of the loss. If you're humiliated, you may want to give up and never do that again. But actually, research has shown that someone who just missed it and really thinks, oh, I could have won, really can fuel them to a new level of success. But the key is that focus on what were the mistakes I made and the things that were different that proved I can actually do this 
if it was just Miss Ditton, I don't think no matter what I do, I can change the situation. The outcome will still be the same. I will always lose. Then, yeah, you probably are going to drop out. We don't need guaranteed wins. We need a close race. We need the belief we can win, not the guarantee. Do you think that in order to win, you need help? I mean, do most Olympians have a coach? Most tennis stars have a coach. Do you need a coach, or can you do it yourself? I think you need a coach because you need someone to help you be a reference point to realize how much you need to develop. And that's actually more true for the expert. The expert needs to be reminded of how, how much farther they need to go because they're already so great that small differences on a day-to-day basis may not really seem like that much. It may not be that motivating, but that next level is where you need an external source. So if it's not a coach, it could be a rival, right? But it's someone you need to look at as a comparison to remind you of where you still need to improve. Yeah, well, there's, there's that quote in your book about how a horse never runs so fast as when he has other horses to catch mm-hmm. up and outpace. And, and that rings right, that competition really does make you perform better. If, if you know someone's running up on your tail there, you find that extra spurt to, to pull ahead. Oh, absolutely. And it challenges you, right? The other person makes you think, I can't take what I'm doing for granted, in, in both ways, right? I'm, I think I'm doing really well, and then someone flies by me. I'm like, oh, wait, I wasn't as great as I was. Or it may be that you're struggling or pushing yourself to stay ahead. And that's what great competition is. You know, it's not about tearing your competitors down. It's not about embarrassing people. It's about using them to inspire you to do the best you can. And they have that same process. You know, if you want to find some motivation... Pick someone who's just a little bit better than you. Not huge difference, but somewhat better than you, because then you have someone to chase. Well, and most people listening are not, you know, going to be Olympians. Olympians. Mm-hmm. They're going to, you know, but they're going to be, be wanting to win at other things, at, at mm-hmm. work, at, at relationships or whatever. Same rules apply, you think? Absolutely. Uh, in terms of the focus for improvement rather than focusing on results, how did you grow? I give that advice to elite performers, but I give that advice to five- and six-year-olds who are trying to learn how to write their name. It's not about being perfect. It's about, is it better than the last time you did it? So the rules and the mechanisms, the biology, the psychology, they all work the same. I'm speaking with Ashley Merriman. She and her colleague, Poe Bronson, are authors of the book, Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. Whenever you visit a website and that homepage pops up, you immediately form an impression of the company or the person who owns that website. That's why how you create your website is so important and why you should use Squarespace. A website is critical for even the smallest business or organization. Maybe you're an artist or a designer and you want to showcase your work or you have an event coming up. You need to have a website, and you can do it all with Squarespace. For starters, you can search and buy your domain name at Squarespace. Then you can use their beautiful templates created by award-winning web designers, which you then easily customize to make your website look gorgeous and unique and just the way you want it. When you build a website with Squarespace, you get free hosting, all the analytics you need, search engine optimization so people can find your site, 
and 24-7 customer service. That dream, that idea, that thing you want to do, it's nothing till it has a website. Make it a reality with Squarespace. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code SOMETHING to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com and the offer code SOMETHING so they know you heard it here. So Ashley, what about things like home field advantage? I mean, what what does the science say? What does the research say about those kind of things, like home field advantage? It's real. And more relevant, I think, in some ways to business than it would be to sport. Although Major League Baseball stadiums, other ballparks, home field advantage is somewhere between a three to seven additional game a win a year. But if you build a shiny new stadium with new facilities, you actually can lose home field advantage for a year. And the reason is home field advantage is not just this is my turf. It's also, this is not your turf. I own this, and you're going to have to take it from me. Those people in a a new stadium don't feel at home at it because it's all shiny and new, and they may even have to protect themselves and protect the stadium from their own spills or mistakes. But once you own it, someone else has to take it. So my favorite example of this is they actually did a study of Atlanta shopping malls and found that it's not your imagination. If you're waiting to get someone else's parking space, they take longer to leave the space. And they take even longer if you use your signal to say you're moving in and honk. And even though your goal is to leave the parking space, what you're doing is you're saying, here's something I now have, you want it, and I have to give it to you. And subconsciously, we don't want to do that. It's our <laughs> turf. You've got to earn it. You've got to take it. That, that surprises <laughs> yeah. me, because when I know somebody's waiting, I, I like to think that, oh, well, let me hurry up and get out so they can get the spot. But, but, but I sort of understand what you're saying, that, hey, wait a minute, I'm here already, and you're <laughs> not, and so just hold your horses. Back in the days when there were payphones, they did similar studies with payphones, and knowing someone was waiting for you to finish your call, you took longer. <laughs> yeah, that I can see. Yeah, but what, what's interesting, so, is how, again, how quickly these things happen. A British researcher concluded that home field advantage gave you 160% more value in a negotiation, whether you were the buyer or the seller. And, and all it is is, you know, it's your office, and you get more value. So knowing that research, I was talking to a guy, and I said, you know, if you're asking your boss for a raise, you should ask for it in your office. And he looked at me like I was crazy, and he went, no one gets to negotiate for a raise in their office. And I said, I know, exactly. And he went, oh. Right. <laughs> Like, it's because you're going to the boss and asking him for an increase on his turf and realizing it's up to him and not you if he says yes. What are some of the other, what is some of the other science that you've looked at and uncovered about winning and competition that, that people might not know, un, unrelated to home field advantage? What are, what are some of the other things you've discovered? Well, when we're talking about the structure of competition, it was interesting having researched the book 
changed my perspective of thinking about competition because I had always thought about it from the perspective of the person who is competing, right? What do I win if I win? What do I lose? How long will this take me, et cetera? And the structural science actually thinks of it from the point of the organizer of the competition, which makes you see it much differently. For example, if you decided you wanted to increase physical fitness in your town, you might have a 5K, but you want everyone to become more physically fit, not just elite athletes. So it's a 5K run, walk, or crawl, and everybody gets a medal so that everyone can feel like they're accomplishing something and no one will say, that's too hard, I can't do it. Now, if you do that, though, the elite performers, the serious runners, aren't going to sign up for that race because it's not a challenge. It's not interesting to them. There's no actual competition, right? They're going to be insulted that everybody gets a trophy. If you want to, as that organizer, not find everybody gets involved, but who are my best performers? You know, if you're a college scouting for teams or increasing, you know, elite performance, now you maybe only want 30% of the people to come home with a medal, and you're going to increase entrance fees. So your, what you as the organizer want changes the competition, and that will then change who is willing to compete in the first place. Let's talk about that everybody gets a trophy stuff. I mean, then people have talked about that a lot over the last mm-hmm. several years, and uh, yeah, everybody has their opinion. My opinion is, uh, yeah, I'm sure you do. My, my opinion is that, that it hurts more than it helps. Um, mm-hmm. but, but how does it hurt? I mean, it, 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 except to demotivate people, what, what else does it do? Well, I should say I hate programs where everybody gets a trophy. I hate them, hate them. And I actually was Switzerland. I was neutral before having written, you know, actually two books relating to motivation. One was about kids, one was about competition. And I really didn't go in hating it. The science that I had learned, that's what actually catalyzed my profound hatred of it. And I think, first of all, yes, it's demotivating, especially for your elite performer. But I think there's some moral lessons, right? I mean, great competition is about pushing people to your best, right, and improving. And I think that over time, for kids, everybody getting a trophy at every single they do is teaching them nothing is worth doing unless you come home with the medal. We are winners here. Failure is not acceptable. Learning from losing is not acceptable. You must have a public recognition of your success at all times. I think that's really destructive because we're not just talking one medal one day for one kid. We're talking medals every season, multiple medals even at a day-long tournament just for being there. So I think that that's really actually amping up competition. And actually a study that came out last month was looking at rising levels of perfectionism with millennials. They just can't handle mistakes. They can't handle failure. And I wondered almost immediately, is part of it because they always get trophies and are always told they're wonderful. So there's a lot, there's a lot to this. It isn't just that you can do more push-ups than me. There's a lot more to this than I think people realize, that being a winner takes 
takes a lot of understanding of how to be a winner. Oh, absolutely. I think those are separate skills. And, you know, the five or ten years ago, you would have heard that the key to elite performance was doing a task a million times until it was exactly the same and you did it without thinking. And there is a automation sort of programming and motor and repetition. There is an advantage of that. But the elite performer is not doing something, the same thing every time in the same way. The elite performer, whether we're talking about someone at work or on an athletic contest or whatever, but they're constantly adjusting to the circumstance. They're realizing what they did yesterday doesn't necessarily match exactly what's going on today, and they've got to figure out how to fix that and address that. So adaptability is a key to that expert and what, what makes an expert someone who's really shining versus someone who's just solid and kind of reliable but isn't going to change things. The experts going on the fly and adjusting as they need to. So it turns out that adaptability is a separate skill that we can teach right along with any of the mechanisms and the mechanics. Well, I appreciate the insight. It's particularly interesting now watching the Olympics to get a glimpse into what it is that makes an elite performer or an elite athlete and, and how we can apply that to our own lives. Ashley Merriman has been my guest. She is author of the book Top Dog, The Science of Winning and Losing. There is a link to her book in the show notes for this episode. Appreciate you being here, Ashley. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor to get to talk to you. It's pretty easy to make the case that as a culture, we are getting ruder and nastier to each other. Why is that? What has caused so many people, it seems, to have an opinion on just about everything, feel the need to share that opinion, and then on top of that, the need to villainize and attack anybody who disagrees with that opinion? Is this going to continue to get worse? Can we do something about it? Danny Wallace is a man who is concerned about this. He is the author of several books. His newest is called F You Very Much, (laughs) Understanding the Culture of Rudeness and What We Can Do About It. Hey, Danny, so where did this come from? What's the cause of all of this? You know, you can blame it on almost anything. The rise of social media is, uh, is an obvious one. And, and there is just this sense that we all have to be heard. There is a certain arrogance, I think, to it. And I think we're celebrating the wrong things as well. Certainly over here in Britain, um, there's a phrase people use all the time, which is, I'm only being honest, you know, I'm just telling it like it is. I'm just saying what other people are thinking. And I think if you're doing that, you have to sort of ask yourself, why are other people only thinking it? You know, does it need to be said in in this way and in this manner? Um, So, you know, I think there is a gradual coarsening of of debate that perhaps we're all a little bit guilty of. We all want to be heard. Um, It's just happening more and more. I love, I love that. Well, why are other people not saying it? I like, well, yeah, maybe there's a point there. Right? Maybe you ought yeah, to not say yeah. it too. Uh, yeah, yeah. People not say it. Well, there is a, something a little British about that, you know. It could be, and I, I you know, I am very British. Yeah, I can in tell. that way. Um, <laughs> at one point, someone else had accused me of this. Um, a man named Brad Blanton, who is a pioneer of what's called radical honesty. And he sees politeness as being almost deceitful. Um, why am I not saying uh, the rude thing if I'm, if I'm sort of thinking it? And so to sort of test that theory, I did uh, fly to Germany 
um, uh, not just because the Germans have, uh, have a reputation for telling it like it is, uh, but also because there was a radical honesty course happening there. Um, so their idea is that if you see someone whose haircut you do not approve of, rather than ignoring it or saying, no, it, look, it looks nice, you know, um, you're supposed to say, I do not like your haircut. Um, and I found my time on that German radical honesty course one of the most excruciating uh, and <laughs> sort of embarrassing and counterintuitive uh, experiences I've ever had. So perhaps, yeah, there is a point. Perhaps, uh, perhaps I am repressed. But that's a great example because, you know, what's the point? Why, why insult somebody's haircut when it doesn't matter and all you're going to do is hurt somebody's feelings? What's the point in that? Well, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think it's far better to live in a society where we have empathy uh, and we think about other people's feelings. So we're celebrating, I feel, the wrong things at the moment. We're celebrating people uh, for their, in quotes, honesty, whereas actually um, they're just asking us to stand around and applaud them for their honesty, which, you know, is tantamount to applauding them for just being rude. Don't you think, though, that while it does seem that people are ruder and nastier to each other, that on the other hand, we also have people who take such great offense at everything that you can't look at them the wrong way without them being offended, and that, that, that that's got to stop too. Well, I certainly feel that we've gone too far in the offense uh, that we pretend to have taken at almost anything. Right. And I think that it's, it's very, very unhelpful. Some people are going out of their way to be rude, um, and they should be called out on that. We should shine a spotlight on it. Um, you know, there's a thing called the looking glass self, coined by Horton Cooley. And, and that's basically, as humans, we're always looking um, for how we are being perceived by other people. You know, am I coming across well? Does this person like me? Have I uh, offended them? So, so, so that is a very, very important thing in human interaction. And when we confuse it by being offended by everything all the time and demanding apologies and demanding that the, the, the specific phrases that we have in our heads are being used by people who may never have heard those phrases before, that's just noise which, which really confuses um, everything and makes it much harder to make valid points about the rudeness of others. What do you say when someone says in their radical honesty kind of way that you know, if you see something you don't like, you should be radically honest about it? And you would say, well, wait a minute, what? What would you say? Well, so, so if they're saying that to, to me, then, then I would sort of remind them that, that society, to function properly, needs a certain amount of lubrication. And we've developed these, these, um, these techniques uh, for millennia that, that are unwritten rules. And they're unwritten because we don't need to write them down because they make such perfect sense. They work. So it's little things like making sure we say please and, and thank you. Or if we're opening a door and there's someone running towards that door, we can just take a second just to hold that door open for them. We can do all these things. We can, we can be nicer. We can consider other people. I don't know what good it does the person whose haircut I don't like to be told I don't like their haircut. I don't see what the real positive is. The argument they would make um, is that by being completely honest, uh, I'm going to break through to a whole new level of friendship with that person because there won't be any lies between us. They'll know exactly <laughs> where I'm coming from. Whereas from my point of view, I don't want to be friends with that person because they're rude. Right, exactly. 
And, and you know what? I bet you they've had a bad haircut once or twice in their life and probably didn't like it if somebody said to them, I, I hate your haircut. It's probably what drove them to this sociopathic behavior. We're just <laughs> going to find a history of terrible haircuts. <laughs> but also, when, when people are radically honest, when they're rude, as, uh, as we might more commonly call it, it creates a conflict that need not be there. Well, absolutely. And, and I think there's even a confusion about uh, just that word honest, because very often when people are putting these opinions out on Twitter or, you know, at dinner parties or, or, or whatever, um, they're, they're, they're confusing a lot of different things. A lot of people confuse cynicism with wit. Um, they think they're being funny just by uh, being rude or, 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 or being disparaging about things. And a lot of people say they're being honest. Um, when they're not being honest, they're just finding some opinion that makes them stand out um, so that they can look a little bit smarter. So very often it's, uh, it's really not about honesty. Um, it's just about sometimes ego, um, sometimes, um, I suppose, uh, the sense that they're not being taken seriously. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, strange things that lead someone to become, you know, what we what we'd term rude. Right, but... Because people are rude, it often results in wanting revenge. I mean, if somebody's a jerk to me, you, know, think, you think, well, you know, maybe I ought to be a jerk right back. Well, yeah, we trade almost like stocks and shares, you know, on, on respect, basically. And when someone is rude to us, you're right, revenge is a very interesting word to use. Because if someone commits a crime against us, if they rob our house or if they shoot our dog... Um, we don't immediately want to shoot their dog. Um, we want justice. But when someone is rude to us, we tend to want revenge because we want to either drag them down to how they've made us feel or we want to claw our way back up to a sort of, uh, you know, a level seat with them. And, you know, in my research, I actually asked people, thousands of people, um, whether they had ever felt the need to take revenge on someone who'd been rude to them and further... Um, how they had done that if they had. Uh, and the results were sort of, some were funny, some were playful, but some were quite dark. So it would go from uh, someone going, yes, you know, I took revenge uh, by letting a dog lick a sausage I was about to serve them in a restaurant. Um, uh, just some very weird, surreal ones, like, you know, a plumber, I think it was, uh, to take revenge on another plumber, uh, just turned up early for work and turned all the other guy's equipment upside down, uh, which is just a bit weird, uh, but it made him feel better. Um, but then it got darker, and it was things like, I, I sabotaged them at work. Um, I slashed their tires. Uh, and one person um, slept with someone's partner. So these little slights, these little digs into a fragile um, person or, 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 or an ego can mean uh, that we take real revenge on them because we feel that that rudeness has got right to the core of who we are and, and it doesn't sit well with us and we want to get back to where we thought we were. Well, road rage is the perfect example. I mean, people go, people pull guns out and shoot each other because they got cut off. I mean, it's, it's like... Wait, wait a minute, this is ridiculous. Well, here's an interesting thing about road rage. If you are, you know, in your car later on, you're driving home, and you see someone in front of you who happens to have a bumper sticker, avoid that person. Because the very act of putting a bumper sticker on your car uh, means that you have, uh, you consider that car 
uh, like part of your home territory. You've personalized it. It's not just a metal box to get you from A to B to you. It's part of who you are. And so if someone cuts you up and you're one of those people, you're much more likely to take great offense and much more likely to try and get revenge on them, whether that's, you know, a hand gesture, uh, some fruitless shouting, or as you say, you know, loading your gun. And in America, and I, I lived in America for a year, uh, last year, and something that frustrated me as a, as a British person was very rarely in Los Angeles where I was living did anyone thank me for doing a good deed for them, for letting them in at traffic or for pausing to, to allow them to make a maneuver. They wouldn't wave or nod. They'd sometimes just look at me. Um, but they would never say thank you. And in Britain, uh, we sort of trade on that. And, and something has developed organically in Britain that hasn't yet happened in America, as far as I can see, which I feel um, uh, speaks to all this and has, I, I, you know, has, has seems to have tempered a lot of the road rage that could happen, which is when you have made a mistake when you're driving, um, maybe you've cut someone up and you didn't mean to. Maybe you're trying to change lanes and you've just, you've just done it inelegantly. Uh, you, you, you flash your hazard lights for just a couple of seconds. It might even be illegal. I don't know. But everyone does it over here. And it means either sorry or thank you. But what it really does is say, I'm a person and I'm thanking you, another person, for inconveniencing you or, or, or for doing me a favor. And you know, when they don't flash their hazards, oh, my God, you hate them. You absolutely hate that person. You go from, from zero to 100. But the second they treat you as a human being, all that anger dissipates. And I, I really think that it's, it's a technique that, uh, that really has led to, uh, to, to the decrease in road rage. So what do we do about this? What, you've researched this pretty well. So what's, what's the suggestion and the recommendation? It's sort of that looking glass self again. It's kind of like, you know, holding a mirror up to someone's behavior. There are ways of highlighting what they've done. There are ways of uh, shining a spotlight on it, but in a non-aggressive way, with a bit of grace and a bit of empathy. Um, you can very often end that strain. Um, so you can do it on a, on a very low-key, everyday level, just by pointing out politely that someone's being a bit rude, but maybe with a smile, maybe finding a joke in it, diffusing the situation. There are people who have done it in very spectacular ways, though. There's a guy who used to be the mayor of Bogota at a time where the city was pretty much seen as the most chaotic on the planet. And everyone was just driving however they wanted, parking their cars on the sidewalk, jaywalking left, right, and center. No one was obeying kind of the rules. And the more people who weren't obeying it, the more it sent a message out to everyone else that they could behave however they wanted. And so he did a very, very odd thing that I think is absolutely genius. He employed an army of mime artists, and he sent these mime artists out onto the streets of Bogota with a very simple task. If you see someone behaving rudely, show them. So people would find themselves, um, uh, you know, parking on a sidewalk, um, uh, inconveniencing everybody, and then they would suddenly be surrounded by dozens of mime artists, all just pointing uh, and, and shaking their heads uh, at the, uh, the guy in the car. And then the public would feel buoyed by this, and there would be a sort of joke to it. So people would gain confidence and be able to mock those people as well. Or someone jaywalking might look behind them, and they're being followed by three or four mime artists walking in exactly the same way as they are. And that is a, a very odd but brilliant way of highlighting um, 
behavior that shouldn't be happening and shining that spotlight on it in a powerful but quite playful way that then sort of reinforces the ideas that, look, there are rules. There may not be written down, but this isn't the way we should be behaving. So, you know, I, I think that if we could employ uh, an army of mime artists in every city in the world, I think the world would be a better place. Yeah. Well, and it also just seems that when you're rude, you're a lot less likely to get whatever, whatever it is you want than when you're nice, because people cooperate with nice people, and they don't cooperate when someone calls them names and calls them a jerk. Yeah, and we live in a system that requires cooperation. So when we have people, you know, uh, you know, kind of at the top of the country who are, who are, who are you know, saying this is an okay way to behave, uh, we can be disparaging towards uh, minority groups. We can give dismissive nicknames to, to almost anyone we like. We can choose whatever words we want to use so long as we're telling it like it is and not being politically correct. It sends a message to everyone else that, yeah, I can act that way as well. And then they teach their children that, and their children grow up uh, doing all these things. And uh, pretty soon you realize that you've coarsened the culture to the point that for generations, um, you know, people are going to be affected by this. It's confusing. Maybe we just need to write these rules down. Well, I'll say this as politely as I can, so please don't take offense, but we're out of time. But it's such an important topic because it... It seems to me, anyway, that things are getting out of hand, that people are, are getting so nasty with each other, and that it would be nice to bring civility back, that we could be nice to each other and expect people to be nice back. It would just make life easier. Danny Wallace has been my guest. His book is F You Very Much, Understanding the Culture of Rudeness and What We Can Do About It. There's a link to his book in the show notes. Thanks, Danny. Thank you very much. Cheers. There is a scam, a ripoff, and you have been a target if you've ever gotten an email solicitation for mail enhancement products. If you check your junk mail, there's probably one in there right now. And if you type on the internet mail enhancement, there is no shortage of websites that would indicate that the mail enhancement business is a thriving industry helping millions of men. Well, it's a thriving industry, but it isn't helping anyone, not a single person. To date, there has never been a cream, pill, potion, or anything that has been shown to help make any part of the male body bigger. Never none. But it's worse than that. Some of these pills and potions can actually be dangerous. They're typically manufactured in China, and there's virtually no government oversight. A report published in a prestigious medical journal found some of these pills are actually tainted with pharmaceutical drugs and some have counterfeit drugs and who knows what else is in there. The general recommendation is to stay away from these pills and potions for two reasons, even if they're sold in reputable stores. First, they don't work. And secondly, they could be dangerous. And that is something you should know. We're on Facebook and Twitter, and we publish content there that you don't hear in the podcast that I know you'll like. And if you like us on social media, you'll see posts that remind you to come back and listen to the next episode. I'm Mike Ruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.